Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the Chabura. Uh, I am Sina Kahen, uh, one of the co-founders. Really honored to be back behind the camera. It's been a while since I've been able to uh, introduce a shiur, be involved in the shiurim um, in the host capacity. So I'm very glad to be back. I, I think I look pretty much the same, just a few more bold patches and a few more wrinkles. Um, really, really, really honored to be here for a very unique and special Sunday event with a very unique and special hakam. Before I delve into tonight's proceedings, I will be giving a little bit of an introduction to the Chabura for those who are listening on YouTube, the hundreds who will be listening on YouTube or on the podcast later, as well as those who may be here for the first time uh, from Rabbi Phillips's network and elsewhere. The Chabura is an online and physical Bet Midrash uh, dedicated to the classical Sephardi approach. We've been active and growing and thriving really over the last four years. Um, and we are very honored to see and very proud to see how the tradition has impacted so many around the world. Uh, we are under the auspices of the Spanish and Portuguese community uh, in the UK and uh, very, very proud to be uh, financially supported uh, by the likes of Montefiore Endowment, as well as Dangor Education. We have students from all across the world. I think it's over 22 or 23 countries. And we offer weekly shurim, as well as a publishing house, Da'at Press, where we publish cutting-edge Torah from our hachamim of the past, students of the present, and teachers of the present. And one of the teachers that we have had at the Chabura, who is also a member of the Chabura, is being interviewed tonight. It's a real pleasure uh, to host somebody of this caliber for tonight's event. I have to say, Rabbi Shmuley Phillips is somebody that I came across in the early days of the Chabura. Uh, I kindly reached out to him to receive a Haskama for one of my first books, and he kindly obliged. And the way I got introduced to Rabbi Phillips was through a very important work that he published called Judaism Reclaimed. It was essentially a Maimonidean presentation uh, on the weekly parasha. So weaving through the stories of the parashiot were four ideas of the classical Sephardi tradition. And he's done one better. I didn't think it, he could have really improved on that. But he's now published a phenomenal, phenomenal work, a really important book in the library of Talmudic and general Jewish literature, Talmud reclaimed. Uh, before I delve into a little bit about the book and start the discussion, I wanted to do a quick introduction uh, with regards to who Rabbi Phillips is. He was born and raised in England and spent almost two decades studying in Yeshiva and Kolel in Eretz Israel. During this time, he also completed a law degree from the University of London. He currently resides in Rachavia, Yerushalayim, with his wife Rivka and four children. And he divides his time between Torah study and managing a suite of service offices in downtown Yerushalayim. Now, the book, Talmud Reclaimed, I'm just going to hold up so everybody can see what it looks like. And it is available on Amazon. So a short link to the Amazon page is tinyurl.com forward slash Talmud Reclaimed. I'll be posting that in the description of this YouTube video, uh, as well as in the chat a little bit later. 
the reason why I think this book is so profound on a personal level is because the, this book really sums up in very simple and layman terms so many of the ideas and ideals that the Chavara upholds with regards to the study of Talmud, the history of the Talmud, the development of the Talmud, and the methodology of our cherished Sephardi Hachamim. Um, and Rabbi Phillips, it's a real pleasure to have you here. And I think the first question really that I want to delve into is tied into the title. When you say Talmud, how are you defining Talmud? Well, after that long introduction, I'll give my own shorter introduction. So first of all, thank you so, so much for hosting me, for having me as a member of the Chabura over the over recent years. I've, it's something I've gained so much from, the in, in interactions, the, the teachings, the Shurim. So thank you very much for all that you've seen and I've done to set up the Chabura and uh, keep everything moving together, the, the weekly Shurim and all the uh, all the projects. Um, as you mentioned in the introduction, I'm giving the Shur here from Yerushalayim. Um, it's obviously it's not been a very easy time, very simple time in the last few weeks. And I was having a bit of a back and forth with Sina you know, a couple of weeks ago. Is it is it right to to hold this shiur or this interview tonight? Um, should I be publicizing my book at this stage? When uh, I mean, certainly within within Israel, I, I cancelled all my, all my launch events, all my publicity events, because obviously people's minds are very much elsewhere uh, as they should be. Um, my mind has also been elsewhere, isn't it? When we finished that uh, awful Shabbat, the Simchat Torah, um, running in and out of the, the the shelter throughout the day, and someone mentioned to me something about my book, and my mind literally went blank. Yeah, you know, I've been spending you know, weeks getting it uh, getting it uh, transported and, and sold, and obviously years writing it, and my mind was just so completely taken up with what I was going through. I, my, it took me five, ten seconds to switch on and remember that I'd actually written a, a book. That, so. Ultimately, I think I think it is the right thing to do. Um, we are, you know, we're, we're told uh, through our tradition that um, at a time of Eitzarah, at a time of difficulty, we're supposed to try and strengthen ourselves through Tefillah, through Gminot Chasadim, and also through Torah. And this sort of book, which describes really the the connection, the historical connection the Jewish people have to the Torah through the oral tradition, is, some, is something which I, I really hope can be a source of merit, the, the collective Talmud Torah that we have um, by studying this both tonight and, and in the future, uh, we'll, we'll be able to stand in the or merit for the, the Chayalim, the soldiers who are, who are fighting right now. I know that some, some people told me they might tune in for, if they're not actively serving. And um, obviously the, the, the hostages who, are, who we're all praying for. So yeah, it's just a, a short introduction. Now, you asked me about Talmud. So what, what is Talmud? What is the oral tradition? So a little bit, bit of background on that as well, because there's a little bit of a misconception when people start thinking about the, the written text of the Torah and the oral tradition. And very often the, the way it, it, we first encounter it is we assume, first of all, we've got this written text of the Torah, which came many years earlier, is, is often, is often uh, portrayed to us through the academics, at least. We, we picture this written work of the Torah, and gradually this uh, oral tradition of how to explain it built up over the years around it, and, and we try and trace it back as much as we can, but 
very much, if we actually even look to take the Torah on its own terms, there's something which Rav Shem Hirsch points out. Looking at the text of the Torah itself, it's evident that what we had was an oral tradition right from the start. And Rambam talks about in the introduction to Mishnah how, how first of all, when, when Hashem revealed the laws to Moshe, he first, he gathered people around, first it was Aaron, there's Elazar, there's a Kenim, and then it gradually the whole people. It was an oral teaching, it was a, and everything would, would be explained by Moshe as he was teaching it. So the really what we have is the written text and the oral tradition, the explanation. So there may have been some kind of fixed text or fixed words that were known at the start, but really at the, it was all a matter of oral teaching that we had back then. And we only really talk about the Sefer Torah, the, the written scrolls of the Torah, right at the ends of the 40 years in the desert, when we're, when we're ready to go in the land, Moshe is departing the scene, and now we have this fixed version, these fixed words, which are now put, put together, and we have this text of the Torah. And what is also interesting is how we therefore, we, we really could relate to the idea of a written text of the Torah and an oral tradition on that basis, because if we assume that certain mitzvot, which the people were likely to come into contact with very often, they wouldn't need much explanation of that. So, for example, things like tzitzit, mezuzot, tefillin, which we imagine they may have been keeping on a more regular basis, they're hardly defined at all in the Torah. Certain words are used, and it's just assumed that the people there know what the Torah is talking about. So there's very little explanation that's needed. Other laws, which were primarily the, the, for the Karnim, the priestly laws, the Korbanot, Sarah, the leprosy, other laws like that, the, the ritual laws, there were very few Karnim, from what we understand at the time in the desert. So Torah goes into a lot of detail to explain all of these, because most of the people wouldn't have known them. So we, so yes, yeah, so first of all, the first thing I would say is that we have to realize, we have to appreciate there was some element of an oral tradition right from the start. One of the one of the cases that's often brought is Shakita, ritual slaughtering, where it just says you must slaughter the animals as I've commanded you. So it's very clear that people already had a clear idea from the living tradition what, what was meant by that. And the oral tradition was, was, was right there from the start. Um, Rav Shintra Rafal Hirsch, going back to him, gives a little bit of a, uh, he takes it further, really. Uh, he gives a mashal, a, 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 a comparison of, for, he, he gives example of a university lecture, a complicated, let's call it a scientific lecture, and a student is sitting there furiously trying to write down exactly everything that this, this fast-talking lecture is saying. And very often, uh, he'll have, underline something, highlight something, a little symbol here and there. And to this student who's been at the lecture, he can look at that paper a few days later and work and remember exactly, reconstruct exactly from the little symbols and little highlights, the little nuances, he can recall exactly what was meant. Whereas if a different student who didn't turn up that day to university, he says, can I, you know, can I borrow your notes? You were there, fine, here they go. And he looks there and this little symbol here and this highlight there, and it's all very strange to him. So Ravash says that's really comparable to the people who look at the written text of the Torah and they try to reconstruct what, would, what the halachot were without any understanding of the the time that the, the what the historical context of the Torah 
and the the nuances of the language and the the, the grammar they're, they're going to miss out a lot of what was going on there so that's that's the the first point i want to make moving on from that there's this is something which uh, the rambam highlights very early in his Hakdana, in his introduction to the Mishnah, there's really two very separate components within the oral tradition. What we might call Torah Shabal Peh and Talmud. Torah Shabal Peh is what he, he also labels the Perish Mikubal, the transmitted explanation of each mitzvah. And he says that when Moshe, he, he quotes various uh, Talmudic sources for this, when Moshe came and taught it the, the, from Sinai to the people, he taught each mitzvah b'perusha, meaning he explains the basic components and details which were needed to, to embody the primary purpose of each mitzvah. Sorry, would that be the letter? What is a... Uh, yes. And uh, and that would be that would be and right. Yeah, so the lecture notes also goes back to the Rosh Hashanah, which we're going to talk about a bit afterwards. Sorry, Rav, I'm talking about Rav Hirsch's lecture notes that you were just giving the analogy of. Would that be that category? Would it fall under the Torah Shabbat Peh category? So to some extent, he's referring more to the Rosh which we're going to get to later, okay. which is where we get to the details of the of the laws. Okay. Um, to some to some extent, it's actually the core components. Yes, the core components, which we and how we understand them, arising from the text of the Torah, and also when we get to the drashot, that's uh, it's, it's very important to discuss there. So, returning to, to the Rambam, we've got the, the Toshabal Peh, the the core definition and function and purpose of each mitzvah. For example, knowing what tefillin are, knowing what's basically what shechita is. Um, the, the basic components which, which represent the definition of the mitzvah, um, through which the, if you don't have those, the mitzvah has no purpose. If you don't know what tzitzit are, then you can you can read the parasha and you don't have a starting point. So those were all part of the Pirish Mukubal, they were part of the transmitted tradition, which the Rambam teaches could, could, could never change. It's immutable because it represents the primary purpose of the mitzvah, it can never change. It's not given over to the Sanhedrin, to the Beit Agadol, to anyone to ever change. And then in the second category, we've got the Pratim, the details of the mitzvot. And many of the details of the mitzvot were not defined and not clarified. They were deliberately left open from Moshe in the desert because they were supposed to be given over and they were given over to the Beit Agadol, to the Sanhedrin, to the sages to, to try to explain and understand and interpret the Torah and legislate these laws, what Rambam calls Divrei Sofrim, these, 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 uh, included in Divrei Sofrim, um, these pratim to be, to create the details of the laws that would be most appropriate um, for each generation. Um, if you want to find examples of this, so, for example, if we look at the Ramban on the commandment of Yibum, lever at marriage, that when one brother dies without children, his wife will be married by, by, to, to the other brother. Um, so the way we know it now, the way it comes to us in the Gemara, it is only, the mitzvah is only performed by the brother of the deceased. When we look back in, in uh, Tanakh, we find the Megillah Rutz, 
that's it's called he's called the redeemer boaz is called the redeemer he's seemingly performing his mitzvah of yibum and he is a more distant cousin more distant relative of the deceased and the ramban commenting on this uh on the passage of it, it was uh Amnon um, Tamar and Yehuda and Parshas Vayeshev, he says that, well, back at that time, at the first Mikdash, the Kadmonim, the early sages, legislated this a little differently. And they didn't see, they, I, I presume they saw when it said brother in that parasha of Yibum, that's just one sort of relative who could do Yibum. And gradually over time, these details can be, since they're handed over to the sages, to the courts to legislate, they can be revisited and they can be re-legislated through the, through the ages. So what we really have is these two different components of the laws. We have the, the fixed perish mikobal, the, the core definition of each mitzvah, which since it's the primary purpose, it embodies the primary purpose of each mitzvah, it can never be allowed to change. Then we have the pratim, the finer details, which do not embody the the primary purpose of the mitzvah they're there to help the mitzvah apply within each generation within each scenario and as we'll go on to discuss a little bit later the the chachamim the sanhedrin of each generation would look to the drashot would look to svara would look to the needs of the generation in order to formulate and package the mitzvah as it should apply in each generation so rashman would you say with regards to let's say an example to do with building a sukkah. We're commanded in the Torah clearly build booths during this period. So what aspect or what area of law constitutes just building a booth and which area of law constitutes all the details of how many amotai, etc., under a living tree, next to, you know, etc., etc. So would you say that the building a booth, people at the time would understand that was a booth. They were living in a society or in a culture where booths were commonplace and they knew what it meant. There weren't these clear definitions and details of the structure and the size of a booth. But later, within That's that... That's certainly system, not as clear as it came to us later in the Mishnah. As in, right. There would have been certain definitions. So it's certainly not a house. It's not... So you're, you're, you're so saying something you else. Saying, but it wouldn't necessarily have to be defined in a Pirish Mukabal in the same way. Are you able to put so, with the Sukkah example? Can you can you give us the categories? So we've got the written law, we've got the the oral uh, interpretation of that written law, and then the paratim, which is more flexible and malleable according to the time. With regards to the building of booths, what? Well, how could you distinguish between those three? So the written law would be build a booth. Right, you you dwell in a booth. Dwell in a booth. Uh, yes, dwell in a booth. Uh, exactly. Seven, right. Right. So, so, so we know the idea that you move out of your as part of that. That's the written text. The Pirish Mukabal would give a basic idea of what a booth is. Um, it seems to be pretty clear that it's got to be a temporary roof, not a permanent roof. That seems to be a clear, undisputed core definition of what sukkah is. Is the the fact that it's it's built of something which is detachable it's it's made from from vegetation um the idea of it being a certain height so the idea of it so so the idea of it of exactly the measurements of how big and small it could be that may not have been legislated precisely at the time there may have been a certain idea that once a booth gets a certain 
size, it's no longer considered a booth that's really a permanent dwelling place. But it may only have been later that that was fixed and legislated. So too, when we talk about what it means to dwell in a booth, teishabu, um, does that mean you have to live there the whole seven days? Or does that mean that you have your meals there, you sleep there? So it could be that the idea that you genuinely, generally have to spend a lot of time there, do core functional activities during Sukkot in the booth, that would have been part of the Perish Mukubal. Exactly what it means when you uh, when do you go in? Is it raining? When it's not raining? Do you have to have all your meals there? Which what sort of food do you have? Mitzta um, air when 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 it's difficult conditions? Is that still considered a dwelling? So that would have been argued about and discussed and defined later on by, by through the generations. And that was that would be something which again, if we had a new Sanhedrin today, they could revisit that and change some of those definitions too, which it's a, that's also a key part of the book. The first section of the book very much looks at how do we define these two different categories? How do, can we try to tell them apart? And then it would be very useful, for example, for a Sanhedrin one day when it sets up again, with its first activity, its first task would be to identify which laws that we have belong to the Pirish Mukubal, the core element of each mitzvah, which they could never change, and which belongs to the Pratim, which were legislated by the courts, which a new court could change. And sometimes we find the sages in the, in the Mishnah aren't, don't even seem completely sure about it themselves. For example, there's a, there a Mishnah in Yuvamot, which argues about the, so the nations that we cannot marry into. Uh, there's, there's, there's Ammon, there's, there's Moab, there's, uh, there's Edom, and one of them, they dispute whether it applies only to the males or also to the females. Male Moab certainly cannot marry in. Does it apply also to Moabit? And Rabbi Shimon presents a kalvachoma, a, a logical argument to his colleagues to say that uh, it should apply, I think it is also to, to the women. And they say back to him, if what you're telling me is a received tradition then I'll accept it. Meaning if your kalvachome, if your logical argument is just trying to back up something that we know to be a received tradition, then we stand and accept it. We know we cannot rebut, we cannot argue, we cannot amend a received tradition. But if you are trying to formulate and create a new law through this kalvachome, through this logical constructs, well, then we have a rebuttal because we think we have a answer to your kalvachome. So it seems even amongst the sages, sometimes there was an element of dispute as to which category different laws belong to. Okay. So, so I give some I give some sort of pointers and, and guiders in the book as to how we can try to tell which is which, but yeah, it's ultimately it's also a, a major project. And on that point then, so here we we I think we've touched on a very important point here. So Peratim, you could say of the three categories that you've delineated thus far, Peratim are not necessarily, or they're not clearly divinely revealed peratim. they're not divinely revealed details these are what under the uh, remit of the role divinely mandated role of the rabbis um the details are there to be not necessarily uncovered but to be generated so if i was to ask you what parts of the talmud are not from sinai if the Talmud is essentially a book of Peratim in many ways, then 
wouldn't the logical conclusion therefore be that the vast majority of the Talmud, which deal with Paratim, is, are not things that came directly from Sinai, but rather were the conclusions of the divinely mandated role of Hafamim. Right, so it's touching on the big question of how we can delineate these two categories, which is a crucial job with any degree of confidence. Um, so certainly some of the Mishnayot which come to us, the undisputed Mishnayot which come down to us, which seem to tell us core halachot, I presume they, or the very good chance they do tell us these Pirish uh, Mikubal, these core details of a mitzvah. Another point we have, which the Rambam, at least when he was writing the uh, the uh, introduction to the Farish Mishnayot, there are some people that say he moderated this view over, over time, but certainly when he's writing his introduction to the Mishnah, and also in, this, in the introduction to Sefer Mitzvot, he talks of a, another category of laws which we seem to be using Durashot, um, inferring from the text and building up of logical arguments, which would seem therefore to be paratim, finer details, which can be changed, therefore, he says, no, really, what the sages were doing in the Talmud wasn't creating new law. They were finding sources within the Torah's texts for known laws. He says this, for example, about creates Hadar, um, which we know to be their drug. So the so Ramam's understanding, at least when he was writing the Parish Mishnah, was that we knew all along it was part of the is it, let maybe you say like the Sukkot, that the people knew what Priyat Hadar was. It didn't have to be precisely defined. It was part of the general Pirish Mukubal, which uh, the tradition which came from Moshe. And later on, at the time of the Mishnah, they, the sages were trying to find logical proofs and textual inferences to support and maybe bolster the received tradition. So since we have both of these categories, it now becomes harder to know which is which, even within the Talmud. Uh, certainly, I would say the, the more light, the more uh, of a minutiae, the more of a, of a far-fetched detail um, a law is, though the more it is disputed and debated, the more likely it is to be a detail which is, which is subsequently legislated. And sometimes it, it seems pretty clear. For example, something we say in the, the Haggadah of, uh, of Pesach, we, we say, when we talk about the, the third the paragraph of the Shema, it seems that it was not, it wasn't part of the obligation to, to recite Kriyat Shema, to mention Kriyat Shema at night. So, sorry, mention Yitzhak Mitzrayim at night as part of the Shema until Ben Zoma came along and identified a textual inference which, which was then accepted and, and, and supported. So we see from there, very clearly that we're dealing here with a prat, something which was legislated by the court, right? until a certain point, it sounded like they, they wouldn't say it. And then based on this support, this inference, this argument, it became accepted. So this would be an, a, a good example of a detail which, was, which only came to be accepted and formulated and legislated by the court at a certain time. Okay. And with regards to the the activity of Chazal wherein they'll bring a pasuk and they'll quote a pasuk as though it's the source for a detail. From what I've understood thus far from your book, it, there seems to be three main approaches. There's one approach where right. the some hold that when Chazal are quoting that pasuk, they are essentially uncovering God's will. So this pasuk was 
replaced by HaKadosh Baruch Hu for Chazal to um, uncover the true meaning of it in the form of this detail. That's one approach. Um, and then there's another approach, which is that we have these established traditions that have come from Sinai. There isn't a particular pasuk that we can hang that coat on. Um, so they will go ahead and find a pasuk, not necessarily saying that this was the original source for it, but this is what we're going to connect to it. And then there's another side, or the, the, there's, a, there's another opinion, the third opinion, um, which holds that, actually, no, that detail isn't at all Ratzon Hashem in the direct from Sinai sense. The Hachamim, through their power of, as, as it's known, Melissa, um, they, were, they are able to, or through the Derasha, essentially um, lean on a Pasuk, which isn't in its original form um, dedicated to this later interpretation, this generational interpretation, but they are, it's an asmachta, they're leaning upon this pasuk to give credence, is probably the wrong term, but to back up their new detail that is not from Sinai. Is that a correct delineation of the three major opinions? More or less. Uh, I'll clarify it a bit more. It's actually, um, when, I, when I sat down for this chapter and tried to go to the sources, it's, it's actually, as someone who spent, I guess, 20 plus years studying Talmud, it's, it's really sh it's, it was shocking for me to see how great a dispute there is among sort of serious Talmudic scholars as to is the basic bread and butter of the Talmud. So the the drashat of Sukim, it comes it, it's so much, uh, especially the Talmud Bavli, is taken up with these and you got all the midrashah halacha. So much of it, and yet there's such a basic dispute about what's going on and what, and what the rabbis are trying to achieve. And to me, it was just and, and they both both sides brought such strong arguments as well. So we've got, we've got the approach, and we we know there's something called an asmachta. Asmachta is where a law exists already before you sit down and look at the pasuk. A law has either been received through tradition or it's been legislated by the court. But what they want to do is, as you said, to give credence to it or to provide a memory aid for it so it wouldn't get lost. And they find a some kind of hint or, or remez to hang the law on so that it will be known. And when people, I guess the idea is, when people are reading Mikra, they'll they'll see this remez and they'll say, oh yeah, they'll remember the law which has been created or received. Um, I saw something similar to this in uh, in, in one, of, one of the books I was I was, uh, I was reading. And that is very much the asmachta, but that definitely exists to some extent. No one disputes the idea there is such thing as asmachta. The chidush for me, um, is the approach, and is Chacham Fa'or takes, takes this approach, or David Tzvi Hoffman, I've seen a few others, that all there is is Asmachta. There is no such thing as a genuine attempt to derive and infer new law by trying to, to mine out the deeper meaning of the text. Does, do, Everything is Asmachta. Sometimes it's explicit Asmachta. Sorry, would you say Rav Kapach? Rav Kapach would fall into that category as well, Rav Yosef Kapach? Um, I think so, but I'm not 100% sure. I mean, I haven't, I haven't seen him say anything explicitly, so I wouldn't give a definitive answer, but I've seen things he's written which seem to tend that way. So a, a, a cautious yes. Um, then on the other side, uh, the other side of the ring in the other corner, we've got someone like the, the Malbim. Again, a great, a great scholar. 
and he took com the complete opposite, uh, the opposite approach, which I think squares more with the Tosafist uh, ideas, that every single drasha, every single time there's a little a letter which from which we find the rabbis in the Gemara apply law or a new inference to every single one is derived from some kind of rule of grammar, some sort of rule of language. Sometimes we can, we're aware of it, sometimes we're not. And he, in his introduction to the, to the his commentary on the book of Ayikra, he's he's got a whole mini sefer called Ayelet Hashacha, which he puts together actually hundreds of these rules of grammar and syntax and with proofs from, from various uh, sources in the, in the Midrash Alacha. And some of them are really, really phenomenal. Some I, I, I quote some of them in the book. Some of them, again, seem a little bit stretched. Um, but he is he is absolutely insistent that there's, unless we actually find Chazal saying this is Nasmachta and it's not a real source for a law, it's just the law being hung on for a memory aid, the standard, the default, the vast majority of Jirashat are actually being mined out of the text. And when Chazal see an extra vav, an extra hay, an extra suffix, an unexpected linguistic symbol, they looked into that and they understood that there's a deeper meaning of the text, which Chazal are bringing out this law from. And it's just phenomenal because both sides brought such strong arguments against each other. I thought, how how could it be? And I sat down and I and I this, the, the middle part, so to speak, was one I, I really put together while I was writing the chapter. And I I think I I, uh, I again, you can you can read the chapter and tell me if you agree with it. But it's uh, I found it obviously quite <laughs> more convincing. Is that what's going on with these textual inferences? Is that they're not necessarily a pure asmachta, but neither do they represent the inherent deeper meaning of the text. What are they? There are certain rules which were transmitted to Chazal, to the courts, in how to legislate laws. For example, an, a hey, an extra hey on a word, could be taken to expand a certain law. A suffix, um, a vav at the end, could be taken to limit the law in some way. How exactly they do it is down to Chazal to work out and to legislate using Svara, looking at the needs of the nation at that period. Um, but it's not that they are looking in the text and saying, ah, oh, there's an extra hey there, expand it. And it must be the Torah meant that law X is going to be there. And that's the intent of Hashem. And neither are they saying, well, I wanted this law to begin with, therefore I'm just going to find a hey and stick it on. What the hey is, is an indication to Chazal that this there's a law to be expanded upon here, but it's but it's their authority, it's the Bedinagadol's authority which actually does it. And there's a uh, there's a uh, midrash I'm going to quote here from uh, chapter three, which uh, I'll use as a as an example of what I think is going on here. It's uh, it comes from the Sifri to the Midbar, chapter eighteen uh, point fifteen. There is a it's a it's actually a, it's an anecdote. There was a certain legal question which came up when the Beit Din and the Sanhedrin were sitting in Yavne after it had been exiled from its uh, from its quarters at the, at the Mikdash. So the the court at Yavne faced this new legal conundrum: what is the status of the body of a dead firstborn animal, a bechor, a firstborn animal has certain kedusha, certain laws. It's got to be put, given as a korban. If it's got a mum, then it's got other laws that apply. 
very strict laws that apply to a firstborn animal, a Bukhar. But what happens if that Bukhar dies, and by the time you go and bring it to the Mikdash, bring it to the Kohen, it's, it is no longer. So the, the question was presented before the court, and Rabbi Tarfan, who's one of the Dayanim on the court, he argued, he said, well, the Pasuk says, Ach Bukhar. Ach, in the tradition that was, that's been handed through uh, as, as, as part of the Torah Shabbat pair, tells us there's some sort of limitation going on to, minim to minimize the law, to limit it somehow. So Rabbi Tarfan looked at Ach Bukhar and created this new law, proposed this new law, which the court then endorsed, that Ach Bukhar should mean only a live Bukhar and not a dead Bukhar. So the Malbim looking at this will say, well, the word Ach, in the context with all the grammar, with all the linguistic rules, the word Ach actually now means, you look inside that word, what was the divine intent? When you look inside Ach Bukhar, it actually means that God wanted, when he wrote the, when he gave over the text of the written Torah, that the intent that we were supposed to mine out and bring out from the Pasuk was, that a dead Bukhar is excluded from the laws. The Dara Jishanim, Chacham uh, other some other people would say, no, this law had already been either received or or legislated by the court. And Rabbi Tarifon was using Ach to, as a asmachta, as a, as a hook to hang the law on. You know, it, it seems to be that he's done, that he has the Pasuk first and then the law afterwards, but it's, again, we find this... Uh, but what I'm suggesting is the word ach is just an indicator. It's an indication to the court when they sit down to discuss this law, they are aware that there's a limitation clause in that pasuk to guide them to minimize the law of Bukhar. But it only actually becomes law once the court legislates it. And right. potentially the generation after Rabbi Tarfan could sit down again and say, no, we've got a better idea. We've got an alternative law to exclude instead of a dead animal, we think a different sort of bukhar shouldn't shouldn't be uh, come under these laws. So to me, that there's a very much the, those are the two um, outer the outer extremes of how to look at drashot. And then there's my proposal in the, at the end of that chapter that it's more of an indicator. Right. I think and again, it's not just uh, inference of drashot. There's also the, the logical constructs, but you know, that's how to put them all together. That's another. Uh, Right, right. Beautiful. But I would say if we zoom out and think of the rabbinic enterprise as a whole and the oral law as being our human contribution to Berit, to covenant, would it not be a quite logical argument that the second approach, Hakam Faur, Rav Kapas here I found in his commentary to Hilfot Mamrim, I think it's uh, you quoted it as... Um, uh, his Perush the Hilfot Mamrim 1.3 where he states that all rabbinic derivations have the status of artificial asmaktot or support. Wouldn't the logical conclusion be if this part of the oral law or if the oral law itself is our contribution to Berit then the derasha has to be a form of generating new meaning rather than uncovering God's will. I see it as a combination. It is generating new meaning but they're guided which direction to generate in. So this law is supposed to be limited. This other law is supposed to be expanded. This is just... Uh, and, and to me, when you look at how the Drashot are working, the way the, 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 the language, when the Tanayim are talking to each other, so sometimes it does seem like the Pasuk is almost an afterthought, and it seems to be very clear in Asmachta, and other times they're debating, and it seems to be much more likely that they are actually 
not necessarily deriving meaning, but they're taking some kind of pointers from the Pasuk. Okay, so, so, so to me, I, I, I see the, again, what I'm saying with the Rebbe Tavern is also generating meaning. It's only once the courts sit down and rule, Achbachar means this, we were told to limit it, but we're going to, we are going to legislate now and generate this meaning that this limitation should be to exclude a dead body. But if they are generating that meaning, but they are taking a pointer from the tradition which way to generate that meeting. That okay, meaning. You're, you're essentially meeting in the middle by saying that um, this middle approach acknowledges that this, again, at lack of a better term, far-fetched um, connection of this detail to this patuk um, isn't necessarily something that is uncovering God's will, but at the same time, it doesn't keep the halakhic system static. So it has place for upgrading, updating, maybe they're wrong terms, right, but so changing. The next generation after the Bittarifim could sit down again and, and review it. The authority, what, what I'm agreeing with, uh, is that the authority to create this law is fully given to the Sanhedrin. Yes. They are, it's when they sit down and create this law, It that also, that's what makes it law. Yes. It's not the fact that it's... Yes. The, the, but the, what the Jirashat do, sometimes I feel is that they, they guide the Sanhedrin on how to which direction to go in making that law. But ultimately, okay. yes, it's the authority of the court to, to declare that law and to, uh, okay. to change it, to revisit it. Understood, understood. Now, I think, given that we've got another 15 minutes, an area that for me was probably the most um, relatable was the area where you make some differences between the Ashkenazi school of thought and the Sephardi school of thought. You know, being raised in a Sephardi milieu, for the environment, um, it was always fascinating for me to see how in the early days of the Ashkenazi tradition, Ashkenazim constituting around 3 to 7% of world Jewry, uh, even at the peak of the, peak of the Tosaf, yeah, at the peak of the Tosafot period, um, uh, 3 to 7% of world Jewry. But that was the mainstream way of understanding Talmud in my time. And in this generation, I always found it quite jarring that this almost minority opinion at the time, what was the only three to seven percent of world jury representative of three to seven percent world jury, was the standard way of understanding Talmud. And being raised in the environment that I was raised in, I, thank God I was exposed to the, the Sephardi way, but it was very refreshing for me to see from Again, ethnicities don't really matter here, it's about ideology, but an Ashkenazi hacham like yourself, um, really beautifully delineating these differences, because I think this is, for me, the most important part of the book, which is highlighting the vastly difference, the vast differences in both understanding of Talmud in determining Psak, as well as the study, the methodology of Talmud study, and how that differs from mainstream or popular Ashkenazi methods, such as the Briska methodology, and more classical um, Sephardi tradition. So I, I think it, it would be really pertinent for you to kind of give a little overview on how you have laid out the differences both in using the Talmud in determining halakha, as well as the study of Talmud, if you don't mind. It's a, bit, it's a big topic for 15 minutes, so I'll try and do what I can. You can go over for this, don't but... worry. <laughs> But uh, yeah, really, I mean, you say coming from the Sephardi milieu and uh, having seen everything a certain way, having studied the, 
Talmud in a Ashkenazi setting, the way it's overwhelmingly taught, and even when you're reading someone like Rambam, you're reading him through the as, as if he were a Tosavist. And it's, it's only really sitting down years later and trying to work things out for myself that I, you, you notice that there's not how the earlier comment, commentaries of, the, of uh, Rambam ever saw him. Um, if we look at, the, for example, the, the, the Kesef Mishnah, Yosef Karo, and other commentaries, there are certain clear methodologies that the Rambam is using, which is enormously different to the Tosafot. So if I was going to come and say that in terms of halachic methodology, if there's one core difference between the, we'll call it the, the Rambam riff, perhaps uh, the Gaonic methodology, that, that line, and the methodology of the Tosafot, it's in how they understand, how they conceptualize this notion of Ravina Ravashi Sofara'a, that Ravina Ravashi and their academy in Sura, they were the end of the Talmudic period. And after they had issued a ruling, after it recorded halakha to be a certain way, that is irrevocable, it's immutable. No one can come up with a new authoritative ruling. And Rambam and Rif apply this. They understand this much more strictly than the Ashkenazi, or especially the Tosafist and the post-Tosafist uh, Ashkenazi authorities, uh, in in two ways really. First of all, there's a question of can how much can halacha change post-Talmud? I mean, we're looking it's it's 1500 plus years since the Talmud was was sealed, and society has moved on in many ways, and. There's, a, there's often a social pressure, there's a religious pressure, communal pressure to change certain halachot, which don't seem to have so much bearing now. Um, some examples I give in the book, we, it's something which comes up quite often, dancing and clapping on Shabbat, there's maimachronim. So these are takanots. Rabbinically, there's a prohibition on clapping in case you come to fix a musical instrument. So the Tosavot will say, yes, that was then at the time of the Talmud, but now that's not really a relevant factor anymore. We are we don't have uh, musicians sitting around in the in the in the shul uh, playing. We're not going to go and fix anything. It's, it's, it's not a, it's not a practical concern, and therefore it's not nayeg anymore. Maimachonim, the the salt, whatever the chashash was, whatever the concern was to require maimachonim, not nayeg anymore. Whereas Rambam and Rif, if its law is on the book. If at the end of the period of the Talmud, that was the law, we don't have a method of revisiting it and changing it until a new Sanhedrin is created. And that this works not only in rabbinic law, also sometimes in biblical law. For example, when, I mean, in the times of Galut, particularly uh, in, 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 back in Europe, there were certain halachot which were extremely difficult. I mean, not all, all over the Galut, certain halachot were extremely difficult to observe. And the differences between how, for example, the Rambam on the one hand and the Tosavist on the other hand dealt with the situation is it, it's 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 really crucial to it it, it it depicts this difference very clearly. For example, the Rambam was on the, he was on the move he was chased away after leaving Spain he was traveling across North Africa. Eventually, the only place he found he could settle in was Egypt, and according to the Rambam. He writes very clearly, no, it's 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 a sore, there's biblical prohibitions of living in Egypt. And according to certain legends, he's written certain books, he, he's assigned his letters, Moshe ben Maimon, who who's of there, who abrogates biblical prohibitions every day because I'm living in Egypt. What could he do? 
Radvaz, who's a who's a he's a rabbi in Egypt also, who's a is a from the same tradi- broader tradition as the Rambam. He said, "Honest, what can you do? This is the law. The law is you're not allowed to live in Egypt, but there was no other choice. He had been chased across uh, through the exile, and what could he do? He had to live in Egypt, and therefore he considered himself to be to be forced honest." Whereas we find, for example, the Bale Tosfa, the Arayim, when they looked at Jews having to go to Egypt, they started revisiting it. They through well, what was the nature of the, of the prohibition? Maybe it means only returning to Egypt on the path where the Jews first came out. Maybe it only means living in Egypt this way or that way. And they started trying to to rationalize and trying to find loopholes, i.e., almost re drafting the law in certain ways. So the Rambam and the Rif would say that that's illegitimate. So we've got our Sofara'ah. The law as it stands at the end of the Talmudic period is, is fixed. If I can't keep it, I can't keep it, but I don't have the authority to re- to change it. A similar question which comes up between the Sfadim and Ashkenazim sometimes is Chadash, the, the grain that cannot be eaten, um, the new grain until a certain day of Pesach, in the time of the Mikdash, until a certain offering was brought. This is something which was extremely difficult, poss- almost impossible to observe in certain European countries. It was just that if you didn't eat chadash, you'd, you'd, you'd be starving. And there were there were certain um, in- innovative, uh, very intricate arguments brought among the Ashkenazim to explain why in their days it was a it was a it was a safek, it was two safek arts, and we there's what to rely on. It's not so bad. Whereas we can imagine the Ramam and the Rif would have taking the example of what happened in Egypt, they would have said, Chadash is a halacha, it's on the book. In a certain scenario now, we are unable to observe it. We are, it's honest, it's something which is too difficult for us. Please God, we'll, we'll, at some point soon, we'll be able to live in an era and a place where we will be able to observe it. So that, that is that is category A of but, but, the differences in halacha. Before, before, you, before you move on to category B, I'm going to present something and you could say you agree or disagree but listening to that and reading it and understanding it from being taught from my family as well as hearing it from you would you not say that okay if we were to take the safaradi or the classical safaradi the old safarad approach of uh, you know the geonic safaradi approach of seeing this is the law this was the last senate this was the last houses of parliament that we had sitting we are bound by their final conclusions if we break it, we break it. We have to be honest about our circumstance. We're in Galut. It sucks. We have to break it. Do you not think that maintains the integrity of the legal system more so than redrafting, in some ways, pilpalizing the law? Because what the, 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 the former does is say, that's the law. If we can't keep it, we can't keep it. But we know that there is a legal mechanism so that once we do have another Senate or a House of Parliament or a Sanhedrin to determine law, we maintain that integrity because that law is binding. It cannot be changed. But we acknowledge that we can't keep it versus opening the Pandora's box of interpretation and reinterpretation, where suddenly you've got a situation where if the law is able to be redrafted, and reinterpreted and essentially annulled in many instances during Galut without due legal process, without Sanhedrin, without a, a Bet Din Hagadol, then you've got a situation where why do you need a Sanhedrin? 
Why do you need a legal system? What you you suddenly lose the integrity because if anybody from any area can do that, where does it go? And then you've got caked on, um, you know, in 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 a word of one of my favorite hachamim, you've got caked on religion, where things are added and added and added with that without due legal process, and then you're you're lost in a maze of halachic decisions that haven't cut due legal process or haven't or met, authorized or authenticated. Authorized, authenticated. What what would you say about that if it's not too controversial to uh, chime no, into? No, I I, I definitely I definitely hear the argument, and as in in that book chapter, I I try and bring the arguments both ways. I try and then say, well, how would the but the the Bale Tosafot accepted the principle of Rabbeinu Ravashi Sohara. You find in certain situations they push back against certain customs which they believe went against this principle and were, and were post Talmudic innovations. So, I mean, on on your first point. You say, well, in terms of the integrity of the law, you're saying, well, the Rambam and the Rif, on the one hand, it, it, it seems much more authentic, as in they are still keeping the law as it was 15, 1600 years ago. Nothing can change. And therefore, that's much, that gives the law much more integrity. So I can imagine, and I've heard people arguing back the other way, that no, because that leads to such a disconnect. And people are thinking, well, what, what am I doing? I'm 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 drawing myself away. I'm washing my hands. I'm not clapping. I'm instead of yeah, we, we, going to they call it the Gishmak Aminium where everyone's dancing around and singing, and that's my own Shabbat, and I'm really connecting to Shabbat, and not doing that because someone sixteen hundred years ago made a law which I don't consider to be so relevant to me. So some people would say that that itself puts the law into disrepute. So that that's the argument on the other side. Uh, sorry, sorry. Um, I have to put. I have, so to push, you, you I, have, I have to. I have to push back though to that side. I know it's not your side, but then, but you're still losing the integrity of the legal system. Why would you strive to have a Sanhedrin and settle on the land again if you can willy nilly change the law in Galut? So yes, the law is outdated. Right, so that's so that's the that's the next stage of the argument. Yeah. I'm going to bring it's a, it's a fascinating picture of the Meshachachma. Rabbi Meir Simchov Devinsk, who's a fascinating thinker. I think uh, Professor Shai Leibowitz called him the, uh, the only, always says something controversial, the only true philosophical thinker, rabbinic thinking since the Rambam. Was that, yeah, he, he always likes to, he always likes to set people's teeth on edge. So he had, he basically said the same thing as you're saying, that he, it's on the part of the Tokacha. And it seems to be that Tokacha is these terrible things. You, you're going to be kicked out of the land, you're going to suffer. And Ramea Simcha talks about how one of the main problems of the Galut is that we lose connection. Since we don't have a Sanhedrin anymore, we lose connection to what the Torah is supposed to be. It's supposed to be this dynamic, um, this dynamic uh, formula through which the Sanhedrin can, 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 can use its, its actual authority to, to legislate in the way the generation needs. And he said he, he's writing about, uh, he's writing in Europe in the early 20th century, he's saying he looks around, the, the kids nowadays are disillusioned. They look, they look at the Torah, they look at their lives, and it doesn't seem relevant to them. Hilchot Shabbat, instead of electric, you know, talking about electricity and sort of talking about communications and phones, they're, they're, they're having to look at different ways of throwing corn up in the air. And they just don't connect to it. But he said that is the point of the galut. And as, as you're saying, it's we should feel the galut. We should feel that we. That we I mean, and again, people people have been saying to me for years when I when I say this to them, well, what do you mean? It it's, it can't be that it be a new Sanhedrin. It's, there's so much d- division. There's so much infighting. How can anyone ever get together? 
and uh, and former Sanhedrin. And I, I see that the events in Israel the last few weeks, one of the uh, terrible events, but one thing you've noticed is there, there's a unity now, which is unimaginable a few weeks ago. I got a, I got a picture a few days ago there's a there's a one of the people at Moshe Coppel who is behind the one of the big the brains behind the judicial reform, and then you've got this organization Achim Laneshek who is the, the, the leading the rebellion among the reservists who are so appalled at the judicial reform they were saying this is not a government I could I could ever go to fight for, and there's this immense fighting and the name calling and the shouting and then we it was going to split into two states. Three weeks later, these guys are pictured working together in an army base in the south. They stop arms around each other with a big smile. And we see that yes, sometimes it seems like there's so much disunity. We can't, we can't. There's no hope for forming a new Sanhedrin. But when we, again, it's a, it's sad that it has to happen through the, through suffering, through shock, through pain to bring us together. But it is possible. It, I, I truly believe it is possible. And as you're saying, it's maybe feeling the the pain of our lachic system, which isn't doing what we want it to, which seems very detached from our lives, is something which can push us towards forming this sort of sort of Sanhedrin, which, uh, yeah, please God will see uh, speedily in our days. Amen, and, uh, amen. And the last question before we finish, I think this is a very, very important one, which is related to this topic, which is the second part of the question, which is, you've got a Sephardi student and you've got an Ashkenazi student, or a student, a Jewish student, who is studying in two different educational systems, Ashkenazi educational system and Sephardi educational system. What would you say are some of the differences in the methodological process of studying Talmud in the way that you presented it. So it's moving from the from the halachic method, methodology of drawing halacha from studying. the Talmud to the actual study in its own Indeed. right. Yes. So there's a progression that I plot in the book in the, the chapter seven I read on to, which is that the Talmud itself very clearly, very deliberately com- combines the what we call Talmudic wisdom, the Chachmata Talmud, with the process of halacha, determining what the law should be. And I think I think it's, it's very clearly does this for a reason, because uh, as I presented, it's a symbiotic process. You need the two to go together. Um, the way I explain it, there is this great Chachma that the Rambam talks about in his introduction to Mishnah Torah. He talks about it again in Hilchot Talmud Torah. The process of determining halacha, being comparing one thing to another, distinguishing. Well, if you're going, as I, again, I, I go through many case studies here. This is just a very, uh, very basic outline. If you're going to compare and distinguish cases and laws, you have to have a very clear idea of the definition and the details and the ideas behind these laws. If I've got a question over halacha A, so what am I going to do? Am I going to compare halacha B, which seems quite similar, is asur? Halacha C, which is also quite similar, is mutar. Now, which halacha do I compare A to, B or C? So very often we'll find the the uh, sages in the in the Tesefta, in the Mishra Halacha, in the Talmud, they'll go into very precise argumentation to try and define what is the core of each halacha. Well, can, is it more similar to this one? Is it more similar to that one? So the Chochmah, the Talmud, is, is immense. It's it's huge. It's very, very deep. As he, he is, again, the Rambam says in his introduction to Mishnah Torah, he talks about the Gaonim and the early generations who, who walked very deep paths in it. There's a great Chochmah involved. But it mustn't get detached from the halachic process. Why? Because they need each other. Because if um, 
the analysis, if the Chochmat Talmud is detached from Halakha, then as we've seen, it flies off in, it, into this, uh, into this uh, self-serving pillpole in casuistry, which, has, which, is, which is not uh, anchored in any practical discussion. The Gemara would often discuss things which seem quite remote in terms of Halakha, but if it doesn't have any halakhic application, it's a minaf kamina. What's, what's the practical application? And if it isn't one, we're not going to discuss it. Even if it's remote, we'll discuss it. But it has to be anchored in some practical halakha in order to, in order to stop it from becoming sort of self-serving people and casuistry. And on the other hand, you do the same thing. If you study halakha without the benefits of the wisdom, then you're losing much of the benefit of halakha. You're... A, a, uh, Part of a a Talmud uh, Chacham who's, who's studying halacha isn't supposed to just you know pick a book off the shelf and look it up. Got the answer. It's supposed to be a, a new question comes up. He's saying what you know, and and every aspect of our day, every aspect of our life is governed by halacha, and there should be questions that come up, and it should be our mind should constantly be on. Well, what do I do in this situation? What do I do in that situation? And you're constantly having to be medame davar davar, work out. Well, is it is it like this? Is it like that? And it's not supposed to be, oh, I've got a question, let's pick it up, I'll text someone. So, and really what happens, it's, I guess it's towards the, uh, it was after the, uh, it really took took off after the, the time of the Mishanin. Once the Shulchan Aruch was, was written, and you had this codification of Halakha, which again, many of the Chachamim at the time were very opposed to in the Ashkenazi world. Then, so Halakha was, was just easy. It became a very simple matter anyone could just look up. And then yeshiva learning, and especially in Poland, became pilpul because it no longer needed to be attached to halachic reasoning. It became gradually spiraled into this self-serving pilpul, which was completely detached from halacha. Till you get to the stage of brisk, where if you've seen Rav Soloveitchik's uh, halachic man, he writes with pride almost of uh, the fact that, that halacha is this idea deals with idealistic reality, uh, which looks down upon those who are halachic deciders. So the processes of Tony Halakha is something which is almost like a necessary evil that we do when we need to, but that's not real learning. Real learning is the idealistic casuistry. And if we if you look at the um and, and really Safar and, and Ashkenaz have gone different ways on this, because Ashkenaz has emphasized the root of this this this, this idealized in many of the Shivat, especially this this pill pull, this brisk learning which sees the process of studying halakha as some sort of bidiyavad even, it's, it's some sort of necessary evil we don't really want to get involved and it can lead to a great ignorance of halakha, it can also lead to Talmudic analysis which just sort of flies off the handle sometimes. And it's, you look at it and you look at halakha and it's just hard to connect the two. And almost as a backlash of that, you read sometimes uh, Rabbi Vadya Yosef and, he, and he's writing very much about how no Talmud learning should only be uh, uh, focused on halakha and and it shouldn't go into these other areas which are not practical. And I can see the way he's writing it is almost echoing the criticisms of the of the of the early days of Pilpul that he's trying to pull back against what's going on in the Shivats, but he's pushing very much no Talmud should be a pretty much a halachic process. And he sort of de-emphasizes the the uh behind it and, and everything else which is involved. So I, I think very much that Sfadi Lashkazi have gone almost in opposite ways. And somewhere, somewhere in the middle, that we have to recreate that uh, symbiotic process of that, which we see they're doing in the Talmud. It's the it's the chokhmah uh, and the halacha which go together hand in hand. Um, and we see that the comments of the Maharal, which were quite telling, he was also a very uh, very outspoken critic of the Shulchan Aruch at the time. He said that when, when the Shulchan Aruch presented his codes, he said 
it, it is an absolutely terrible thing for Judaism, for Jewish learning. He said it's better when a halachic question comes up for a chacham to sit down, open the Talmud, and try and work out the correct roots of, of, of Isur uh, and get the halacha wrong than just pick up something and just read it off the shelf. He doesn't really understand the basis of the halacha anyway, just looking up a, a one-line answer. So, yeah, these are these are some of the things we grapple with. Again, this is just a very, very basic outline. There's many, many case studies, many, many arguments and counter-arguments and nuances here which I haven't been able to get into. But this is just, just some of the... Uh, some of the things which go on within these chapters. <laughs> Absolutely. That's one thing that I really admire about one of the many things I admire about the book is that usually with the books, you have statements being made, points being raised, but then you've got a little example in a footnote, whereas you've literally dedicated um, the final section, the final appendices with case studies. Um, Going from the sugya, how these well, thirty cases studies there on the differences between Ashka, uh, between Tosafot and Rambam learning, which is uh, phenomenal, to, 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 phenomenal methodologies, phenomenal. practical, practical uh, differences. Exactly, you really see them come to life. Hakam uh, Shmuli, I want to thank you so, 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 so much for your time. I've been enriched by it. I'm sure everybody else has. Uh, if you don't mind, do you have some time for us to go through some of the questions in the chat yeah, for a few yeah, minutes? Is that okay? Um, just looking at the first question. Simon, when you refer to paratim, details, is this equivalent to what Hakam Paur calls dinim muflaim, or is it a different category? Maybe yes, you want to define dinim muflaim first. Maybe it's important to define dinim muflaim first, if you can. Dinim muflaim, from what I from what I understand, they are areas of a mitzvah which are left. Deliberately undefined, uh, or were left at, uh, in the when when the, when the Torah was given over to the people at Sinai in the desert, certain things were left deliberately undefined in order for the court to come along in subsequent years and define them as they saw appropriate. So I think pratim is the term that the Rambam uses in his earlier works, the Mishnah Torah, and he uses this term muflaim in muflaim in his introduction to Mishnah Torah. From what I understand, they re- they refer to the same things. Um, I've heard it argued that he, that as he went on through his his life, he ex, he expanded the he he understood that more of the Gemara the Talmud was uh, consisted of pratim and things which were subject to the courts, and then relatively less was part of the court. But again, I haven't uh, I haven't reached any firm conclusions on this. I, I know there is uh, there is such a such a proposition, and, and whether that affected the term he used to present it, I, I don't know. Okay, brilliant. Jack Hadari asks, why do you think there is such a wide difference between the opinions on how Derashot work, despite it being the bread and butter of the Talmud? So this is, I, I do, I, I wanted to avoid going into this now, but uh, I, I do go into it at the end of this chapter. And there's a there's an essay from Professor Jakob Elman, who, which I drew upon, who, who suggests that this was, to do with how they reacted to the various heresies of their time, the uh, the Karaites who existed at the time of the Geonim and the and the the Spanish um, and, and and the Spanish uh, Rishonim, so they very very much they didn't have any acceptance of a of a of the oral tradition that we have, and therefore, one second, therefore they, they didn't want it to be seen, this is his argument, they didn't want it to, to seem that the Chachamim were just making up Drashat and drawing out Drashat by themselves. He wanted to say that everything came from the authority of the of of, uh, of a court, which was 
but really came from the tradition, from uh, back back in the tradition. Where he says uh, the Malbim, he understands was was grappling with with other things. Uh, I, 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 look, I, I hope I've got this right. Malbim was grappling with other things, such as biblical criticism as well, and therefore he took a different direction. I don't completely accept this, but uh, again, it's it's a, it's a kibun. I, I'm not sure how much I agree with his take, but uh, he says that these two different, the fact they got such extremes, were influenced by external factors. I have to say there was a uh, a Karite, they call their rabbis Hakam, a Karite rabbi that I had met in Ramle, not Ramallah, uh, in Israel back in my teens. And he did say that if you look at some of the early works of the rabbinic Hakamim, our Hakamim, um, that Ashot were understood in this way that we're describing, which is that it was generating new meaning rather than uncovering God's will. But the Karite schism he held came to be the way that it came to be when certain areas of Judaism started accepting that, no, 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 these were received at Sinai. And that's when the Karaites were emboldened to feel that, hold on a second, you guys are creating a whole new so thing. So it's the opposite of uh, what Elman is saying. Yeah, well, yeah. so, so um, uh, in many ways, the earlier opinion seems to be from this Karaite, I don't know if that's too much of an accurate source, that our Hachamim did see that that Ashot is generating new meaning rather than uncovering God's will. Um, question here from Alan Bechor. Is the distinction between Sephardi and Ashkenazi methodology in some way similar to the distinction we draw between statutory and common law? I know you touch on that in the book, actually, so it's a good time to give it over. No, I don't, I mean, I, I go into, for example, legal positivism, positivism on the yeah. one hand, Versus uh, trying to get the intent or the uh, presents the law in its best light. I'm not, I'm not sure that's exactly is that the same as, as what you mean here. I, actually, I don't think it is. No, so I take that back. This is specifically to do says... with yeah the statutory and common law as, as if Sephardi is statutory, Ashkenazi is um, uh, common law. I mean, it can it's... develop more. Yeah. So it, it may it may it may be some sort of overlap there, yes, because we're saying that everything is everything is written, everything is clear um, as a statute versus the common law, which can evolve more over time. Yes, but even that, I would say, wouldn't statutory uh, common law still be uh, subject to legal due legal process, whereas the Tosafot approach right, necessarily would. It's, it's, it's the whole debate which I which I was touching on the legal positivism versus yeah, yeah, the law yeah. in the best light. Even when you have a statute. So there's a question, what do you do when there's a gray area in the meaning? So legal positivists will say either it's clearly in the law or the law doesn't cover it. And either there's no law or the judge has to invent something. Whereas the other side of the argument is Dworkin and those who say that the, the job of the court is to present the law in its best light. So there's no such thing as a, as a, as a clear limit to what's in the law, what's out of the law. Courts are supposed to bring in all these, these right from the start, the point of the law is for the court for the judge to bring in all these other factors and this other analysis and uh, and yeah as i it's it's a, it's a long discussion i go through at the end of that chapter um but that's more the tosavist approach they understand that as long as th their interpretation of the talmud doesn't completely reject and isn't completely the opposite of what the talmud says that doesn't fall foul of ravina rashi that, that's still within the framework of legitimate horror all the different sugyot, all the different opinions, everything you have in the Gemara, the different building blocks that they can use to use their svarah to come up with something. And as long as it isn't completely contradicting the conclusion of Inner Rashi, um, they can use their, their common law reasoning, whatever you want to call it, to 
create what they in Svarah consider to be the, the most logical, the most desired halacha. Whereas the Rambam seems more the legal positivist, that either it's clearly there in the Gemara, there's a certain methodology that he has very strictly for, for how to extract the law from the Gemara. And if it's not there, it's not there, it's not on the cards. So it's not on the books. <laughs> So yeah, there is an overlap there, but it's yeah, it's, it's seeing the book. It's it's too much to really go into now. And a short answer. Talmud reclaimed. I highly recommend everybody to get a copy. If you're in London, we have at the Chabura bought excess amounts so that we can uh, sell them. We've already sold most of them. Uh, we haven't really promoted it much, so I'm hoping this shiur will push it out even more. Um, and if you're in America or elsewhere, it's on Amazon. All you have to search for or type in is tinyurl.com forward slash Talmud Reclaimed. I'm going to put it in the description. I want to thank you again, Ralph Phillips. Really, really, really appreciate it. Looking forward to having you back. I think we have to probably set up a series at some point where you go through some of these case studies I mean, so you can delve in. I think that would be really, really uh, beautiful. Um, and I'd like to end just with I, I a comment here from Hassan Rafmiel. If we justify everything, we can never return to the original law, even when we can. We can easily keep Khadash nowadays, but people don't go back to it. And I think um, that is quite a profound uh, representation of the Sephardi approach. Um, and I really want to thank everybody for being here. And I'm looking forward to uh, the upcoming classes that we've got at the Khabura in November. We're going to be posting uh, a poster in the uh, various WhatsApp groups, so you can see we've got from Diane Livnat of the Sephardi Beit Din here in the UK, uh, to the likes of Rabbi Wiederblank, uh, Rabbi Dweck will be back in November, so we've got a really, really packed schedule, um, and Rabbi Phillips, looking forward to seeing you. Is, is London still on the cards, or unlikely, because I know you were planning on... Uh, it de depends on the uh, on, what, on the matzav here. It's, uh, I'm hope yeah. hoping to come in a couple of weeks, but it's, uh, it's not yet... Uh... Signed and sealed. Okay. Well, once you know, we are looking forward to hosting you in a local London event. Thank you all for being here. Thank everybody you know listening, everybody watching later. And Hakam, uh, we really appreciate it. Good night to everyone. Thank you. Thank you, every Thank you, everyone, for coming. Have a good night.